So, but before I do that, I'm going to give a little background to uh, this teaching. So, somebody once asked the Buddha if they could, if he could describe the essence of his teaching, and in in one line, because he was known to be a little you know, wordy, and um, they wanted this, you know, the. I think they wanted to tweet it, so they needed it short. <laughs> and uh, so the Buddha said, uh, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be held onto, is to be attached to in this life. So um, that is, uh, is really the, one of the, the gauntlets that he laid down for us, is to, is to ask and inquire into how do we move through this life without holding on to things, stuff, people, experiences, which of course are inevitably changing and shifting and not uh, conforming to our wishes anyway, but we still try and hold on and control and therefore suffer doing that. So, um, but a few uh, precursors to the discussion. Um, Some common misconceptions. Sometimes when people hear about this teaching, of non-clinging or non-attachment, there's the equation of it being the same as detachment, which I regard as something quite different. So detachment is one of a stance where we're removed, pulled back, distant, disdainful, uh, and cut off in a way, separated from experience, whereas non-attachment still uh, holds open the possibility of being very engaged in Occupy Oakland or wherever it is with your children or in school or your partner, very connected with experience, but not holding on and controlling the outcome and the flow of experience. The second thing I want to say is that desires are endless, if you hadn't noticed, (laughs) in your meditation or in the day or in your life. And they're not necessarily the problem. The problem is our relationship to everything, in this, in this case, our relationship to desire, our relationship to uh, how we think that desire should be met or played out. Yeah? So um, many, many of the desires that well through our mind and heart, they're just more thoughts and feelings that blow through. It's when we grab onto them and demand that they happen, that they get fulfilled in a certain way, and we won't rest and we won't be at ease until they are, that's when we start to get into, into anguish, into stress, into struggle. So, um, uh, one of the great uh, Indian teachers, um, one of the sort of forefathers of Tibetan Buddhism, Tilopa, he said to uh, his, um, actually it was Tibetan, uh, his... Uh, his descendant, uh, his um, major student, Tilopa, he said, it's not the outer objects that bind you, but your inner attachment to them. It's not the outer world or the outer things or people or experiences. Those don't bind you. It's your attachment. It's your relationship to them that can be the cause of suffering. Yeah? So when we talk about non-attachment, it doesn't mean we're getting rid of all the things we're attached to, we're just exploring, this is, uh, this is, say this is the object of my desire, this is this really cool light that I really think is the bee's knees and I forgot to get one in Black Friday. So 
This is the outer object. It doesn't bind me. It's just being lamp. And this is the uh, attachment that binds us. We bind the object to us, right? We, we control it and then we, you know, and eventually usually destroy it by our attachment. So, so the practice is not getting rid of the whole lot because there's nothing wrong with the lamp. It's a nice lamp. It's lamps go, you know. We're just getting rid of the attachment, right? And then the object can breathe. Our partner can breathe. Our children can breathe. The earth can breathe because we're not demanding of it. So this cartoon, uh, for me, really summarizes this uh, relationship. It's a, it's called, it's from Subconscious Comics, and um, uh, there's a little a guy uh, in a dark room meditating, and his little bubble comes up. Hmm. And then the white light comes up in the in the in the corner of the room, and he says, "Hmm, what's that? Ah, looks good. Ah, I've got to have it." And the grasping attachment takes over. I've got to have it. If I don't have it, I'm going to die. And then he gets it, whatever that is. Yes, yes, bliss. Ah, falls over in the blackness. And the next caption, he's back meditating in the dark room. And then the next caption, the light comes on. Mm, what's that? And on it goes. That's called samsara or our life. Right? We go from one, ooh, ooh, and then ooh, and then ooh. <laughs> So a good example of this, uh, the difference between a desire and attachment is uh, parents who want their kids to do well in sport, right? Every parent is proud of their children playing you know, baseball or whatever it is. And then we hear of these incidents where, where the, you know, the kids have gotten really successful and they're in major competitions and parents do really weird things like they poison the other team members or the, you know, not just parents, it could be anybody, or that you know, people fight and, um, you know, ice skaters, you know, try to get other ice skaters maimed and, you know, the stories from the Olympics. Yeah, this is called attachment. There's a desire, I want to win. That's okay. It's okay if you want to win. It's a fine thing to do, fine thing to desire. But what you do with that desire, that's, that's, that's the issue. It's the attachment. How desperate are you for that? And then the fourth thing I want to say is, um, if you're human, uh, you've survived because of attachment. So, from a Western psychological point of view, attachment and attachment theory is, um, uh, is, is, is using a different language and understanding of the word attachment. So, in attachment theory, it's understood it's essential for the health and well-being of, of, of infants and children to have a healthy bond, a healthy attachment with the caregivers. Without that, often children die without that connection, without that love. So we're not talking about that kind of attachment in the same way you were talking about your mother and, and dog who deceased. There's a healthy kind of attachment that's, um, that's a, a bonding element of human experience. It's necessary. And in that, I want to share a poem uh, from Mary Oliver, part of a poem that I love very much, called In Blackwater Woods. Uh, I just recently um, uh, heard Mary Oliver speak, and 
she gave all these names to these poems. A lot of them are Blackwater Lake and Blackwater Pond and Blackwater Woods. And she said she revealed that there is no such place as Blackwater Woods. <laughs> all these lovers of Mary Oliver are stomping around New England looking for Blackwater Woods, <laughs> hoping to spot Mary Oliver. Well, it doesn't exist. Anyhow, um, she writes, Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. Wait for it. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose, uh, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To love in this world, to live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, so it's going back to that point I was making about, to engage, to embrace life, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So, and lastly, um, as I often say with any teaching, um, it's very easy to pick up Buddhist teachings and start judging ourselves. Oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't now from, because I heard that talk on Monday night, I shouldn't be attached. <laughs> I shouldn't have attachments. Well, good luck. <laughs> you will have attachments, the nature of being human. The point is not to reject them, but to be curious, to be aware, to be mindful. Oh, what is this attachment? What is, is, is it? Is it true that I have attachment? Well, well, let me see where I'm attached. Let me take a look. What happens? Is it, you know, I like some of my attachments. I'm really attached to my puppy or my, you know, let's take a look. Is it really a problem? And really examine this for yourself. So, um, so this idea, this, the, 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 this, the central attachment for the Buddha, one of the central attachments was this idea of uh, clinging to, holding on attachment to sense pleasure. Now, you have to understand the context of the Buddha's teaching was he was teaching primarily to a monastic audience, a renunciate audience who had somewhat renounced already the sensual pleasure of the, of the world. So the, 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 the teaching is somewhat mm, flavored because of that context. So um, uh, I'll say a little more about that in a, in a minute. Um, but, but to um, and so from, I think as a monastic, this teaching is somewhat easier to embrace because you're already renouncing the world and sense pleasure. So, um, but for for us, we're living a lay life in 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 the midst of the world with family and relationships and stuff, um, and so. Uh, this teaching requires a more subtle understanding, a more subtle exploration. Because we need to learn how to live wisely with all of this, right? We're not just saying, no, this is, I'm not doing this anymore. No, we're in the middle of it. And we're human beings, we're sensate beings, we have senses, and we have sense, and, and much of our happiness, we could say, ordinary happiness, worldly happiness, comes through the senses. So what does it mean to not hold on to the, 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 the pleasure from the senses. <clears throat> so I couldn't help reading uh, today some of the stories from Black Friday where some people's uh, desire for sense pleasure or attachment to sense, certain sense pleasures in Xboxes and fridges and TVs and whatever else people were getting at Walmart sales and Target sales and wherever else the sales were happening, 
you know, led to a lot of violence. Someone got shot, so I heard. There was pepper spray. The guards were doing pepper spray on the, on the customers, and there was death threats, and all kinds of weird stuff happening around, you could say, attachment to, you know, partly attachment to sense pleasure, to getting stuff, to getting things that we think will make us happy. Maybe we don't go getting on a pepper spray, but <laughs> we have our own version, perhaps, you know, of grasping. So um, I want to say a little about my, my own story. So uh, I was raised uh, in northern England um, in a working class family. We didn't have a lot. It was a simple life. Um, and uh, I, went to, I went to college um, and got introduced to... Um, very uh, radical um, uh, political consciousness Um, in in similar ways to the movement that's happening now, the Occupy movement. um, I was part of a similar movement in the 80s, uh, which was confronting a lot of um, global injustice, imperialism, uh, economic disparity between rich and poor uh, during the Thatcher years. And um, so... Uh, my slant towards materialism uh, had a particular... I, I, I already felt mm, mm, somewhat anti-materialist or anti-consumerist because I, I saw and, and studied the suffering that comes as a result of the injustices of the economic systems that we live in. Um, and then I got into Dharma practice, which in the Dharma teachings, the Buddhist teachings, highly value a life of simplicity, of, of non-attachment to material things, uh, and many wonderful stories of great teachers and monks and nuns and renunciates um, who, who discovered a, a peaceful life, a free life, not based around the kind of consumption that we live in uh, these days. So, but, but since th- this quality of attachment is pretty universal and also very, and the mind is very slippery, my attachment went from stuff to spiritual stuff, you know, to experiences, to meditation bliss, to exalted states of consciousness, to hanging out, getting close to the gurus, to you know, all the different ways that the spiritual materialism, sorry, and then Chogyam Trungpa coined that phrase, spiritual materialism, where we collect, you know, like a little Cub Scout badges, you know, a little meditation experiences and, and states and, and uh, teachings, and we carry them on, you know, the ego carries them as a badge. Um, and then I, I went, uh, I left college and um, uh, sort of left the, homeless, the home life for a while. For about eight years, I, I didn't have a house and I just wandered and I studied in Asia and Europe and here and did long retreats and I was really living a, a life devoted to the Dharma, which is called a Dharma bomb, where you just kind of bomb you bomb your way around the world, studying and meditating, um, and uh, discovered a lot of contentment with that lifestyle, with 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 this with the living lightly, living simply, living without much stuff, um, and discovering how much uh, ease there was to be had uh, on retreats. Um, Oh, being in nature, I spent a lot of time during that time too in nature. Uh, and then I came to the Bay Area and uh, landed in Marin. And so for this sort of radical working class bloke, 
who hadn't been in much around much affluence, it was quite challenging for me when I first came here because I was I was struck by the affluence and the level of consumerism in in America in general. Um, and then I was then I was aware I became really attached to my views, as I talked about last time. I was attached to my views about people's stuff and people's houses and people's wealth and people's uh, seeming attachment to their material standard of living. Um, and, and I also became more uh, ecologically aware and also aware of the impact of the certain, that the lifestyle that we live here um, is not sustainable. Um, so I, I, and I, when I first moved here, I, I had a house. It was, uh, it's not really called a house, it's called a shoebox. It was about 220 square feet. And I lived in it for three years, quite happily. Um, I felt like a little monk in the woods, uh, simple. Uh, and, um, and it's funny, I've been, I've been reading about, the, the, there's, uh, there's a chap up in, I think it's Sonoma or Mendocino, who builds these little houses, like 100 square foot houses. They become quite vogue these days. And, um, so my, my place was actually palatial. It was, you know, I, I'd sold out, you know, 200 square foot. Um, so, you know, and then of course, as, as I got older, not of course, but as happens for most of us as we get older, we get to uh, like more creature comforts and, and we like to have a little more space than 220 square foot and I moved into a bigger place and then to a house and then uh, and I had to fill the house with stuff as you do. Uh, you don't have to, but one does. Um, and just became, you know, more uh, as I moved away from that renunciate life into a household life and you know, just be, you know, wanting more uh, aesthetics around me and art and uh, and, and then becoming aware of that, of that relationship to material things. And, uh, and always in the back of my mind aware of this, this, this phrase, uh, it's not the outer objects that bind us, but our inner attachments to them. And so I had friends when I first came here who uh, did have a very affluent standard of living from my perspective, and they would challenge my, my judgments, which were judgments at the time, uh, about that and, and, and asked who was, who was doing the most clinging. <laughs> was I more attached to my view? Were they really attached to, the, just because they live in a, in a comfortable place? And then, does that mean, does that denote attachment? Doesn't denote, denote attachment. You could be living in a 10,000 square foot house and be completely unattached. So, um, so again, so the, so the, the, the the emphasis is always on, on back on us to be exploring what's what's happening you know what's true in the moment it's not it can't be defined so easily by the outer circumstances just because things look a certain way or you live in a certain neighborhood doesn't mean anything really or it could depending on the inner relationship so uh coming back full circle to black friday so um for many years, I didn't know what Black Friday was because I never, I never shop. So I was like, Black Friday, what is that? I have no relationship to that. And then, and then I was like, well, I'm not going to shop on Black Friday because that's part of the you know, consumer empire. I'm just not going to do that. So I, that's what I did for a while. And this Black Friday, I went shopping. <laughs> I went to Best Buy and I bought a large flat screen TV, which I have been wanting 
for many years, but just never got around to it and didn't seem that important. I don't really watch that much TV, but I do like watching you know, certain things, movies and things. So I joined, you know, I didn't get up, I didn't get up at three in the morning, I didn't camp out. I didn't really care whether I was there or not, but I, I just thought, well, it's a good time to buy a TV, I guess I should go today. So I went out and bought myself a flat screen TV. And I was thinking, uh, I was talking to my housemate today about it, that um, uh, I don't really care less about the flat screen TV, frankly, except that it works, which I'm still struggling with getting it working properly. <laughs> and I, I noticed I had more attachment to it working than the actual thing itself. I spent time with customer service and uh, this and that. And, and, um, and that's where my attachment came out was to you know, my pride at whether I can actually work out the instructions and get it, work out the HD thing and the cable box and the upgrading and, <clears throat> well, it's a work in progress. I'll fill you in next time I'm here, how I go. So, um, and so, you know, it's, it's the same thing. Someone can go, could come in and go, wow, what's that, what's a Dharma teaching doing with a big flat screen TV in this house? <laughs> well, he's watching it, apparently. <laughs> And enjoying it. I watched Planet Earth the other day and it was very pleasurable. Beautiful, actually. Very beautiful. Um, so there you have uh, the shopping confessions from the Dharma teacher. <laughs> Unabashed. Um, so here's a lovely poem that you may have heard. I know Jack reads this sometimes about purchases. It's called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house, not doing much of anything. The box set of the complete works of Verdi, the, the unopened, complete Proust unread. Proust? Proust? Proust. Proust. The French cut silk shirts, which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet, and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the universe, but which I only use once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining the Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conserving with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And, if, and, if I, and I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil pens drying in their tubes, on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. And while the two of them discuss star clusters in Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet 
while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. It should be called O to Stuff. So in the Buddhist tradition, over the many, many centuries of its evolution, there, there, you could say there are some differing views on the nature of sense pleasure. So in the Theravada tradition, which is mostly a monastic tradition, mostly monastic culture until the last, say, 50 years, um, the, the pervading view is uh, that sense pleasure is to be avoided and to be renounced and that the body is a, um, a vehicle, uh, the, you know, the, the, um, the vehicle of sense pleasure and, and, and of attachment and of defilement and to be uh, uh, detached from in a certain way. Um, and that the, the, the attachments are to be eradicated. <coughs> Uh, later developments of Buddhism, like in the Tantric tradition, in, in you know, maybe a thousand years after the Buddha uh, was around, uh, there was a, or maybe even earlier than that, there was a reaction to this more life-denying, ascetic, world-renouncing perspective, and uh, where the teachings of Buddha nature, where there's understanding that everything has... Uh, inherent, every being has an inherent Buddha nature, everyone has the inherent capacity to awaken, that if, and if everything has Buddha nature, then why would we need to reject anything? Anything can, from that perspective, be a vehicle for liberation. So the body was, was, was re-embraced as a vehicle for awakening, as was sexuality, as was anything in the, in the sensory world. In contemporary Buddhist teachings in the West, uh, Spirit Rock uh, being an example of that, the, the understanding is to come into a wise relationship, to honor the body, to honor the senses, that we're not living a renunciate monastic life, that we are living in the world, and that our invitation, our, its imperative, is to develop a wise relationship to our senses, to the sensual world, to sensuality, to the material world, to consumerism, right? and understanding the effects and the influences and the consequences of our actions when we engage in the material world and, uh, and, we, and we, we affect the world through our choices and our purchases. So the, the invitation is to look, is to examine uh, beliefs and assumptions you have that drive the clinging and the attachment. So when you're in meditation and you're noticing a familiar story or grasping, running, right? We all have those tapes, right? Those top 10 tapes of, I want this, I got to have that, I got to get rid of this. And what's fueling that, that very powerful engine? It's an engine of desire, yeah? What, few, what shifts it from just a, a, from a passing desire that floats through the mind to got to have it? And then we, oh, it reminds me of Joseph Goldstein says, um, attachment is like rope burn. Yeah? It's like you're falling down a rope and you hold on and you get rope burn. Right? Attachment is like that. If I hold on to this light too much, it's going to burn because it's actually really hot at the end. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons um, is uh, in this vein, uh, two goldfish swimming in the ocean or wherever goldfish hang out, maybe in the lake. I don't know where they... Has anybody seen a goldfish in the wild? Just, I don't know. Do they... Yes, I'm here. Yes, okay. In lagoon, thank you. Yes, in lagoon. So there's two goldfish swimming in a lagoon. It's so interesting to even, it's so hard, for, maybe it's true for you, I, it's almost hard for my mind to conceptualize a goldfish that's not in, right? It's like, it's like we trap with this, the, the power of the mind and concepts. So anyhow, these two goldfish are swimming in a very spacious lagoon. Free, happy, and one says to the other, Oi, Harry. What do you want in life? What are you hoping for? Like, what's, what's your dream? And Harry says, I want the whole deal. I want the glass bowl. I want the color gravel, the little castle to swim through, and the plastic plants. That is, uh, when we shift from desire to attachment, we get tunnel vision and we obscure, as you may have noticed, the, the rest of the world disappears and we just fixate it on Ben and Jerry's ice cream, job promotion, getting a raise, you, know, you name it, whatever it is, sexual experience. We become fixated and the world disappears. The beautiful, vast lagoon that we're swimming in disappears yeah, to our detriment. So notice that next time you get caught in attachment. Notice the, the belief. There's a belief system that fuels. You know, ignorance is the cause of these movements. So what is the belief system? If I get this, if I have this, if I own this, if I control this, I will be happy. I will be satisfied. I will be, my thirst will be quenched. Right? So that the desire in, 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 in in Pali, in the Buddhist language, is, is tanha, thirst. It's a thirst, right? With it, with it, with it, when we shift from a harmless desire to an attachment, we're caught in thirst, in this grip of grasping. Which is actually very unpleasant, if you haven't noticed. You know, it could be the most beautiful thing, that we're, the most beautiful person, the beautiful experience we're seeking, but the actual movement towards it is very unpleasant. We've contracted, our belly's tight, our vision is narrow, and uh, our whole experience is constricted, focused, you know, predatorial. <laughs> so, um, I'll, uh, another confession story. So, um, uh, I was on a one of my early retreats my early retreat days uh, in Wales uh, when I was practicing and uh, I was doing this, it was a pretty long retreat for me back then, I forget how long it was, but it was, it was long enough. <laughs> and um, I was uh, having a hard time and I was looking for anything to distract myself as you do on retreat. So I thought, well, I don't have any candy, I don't have any chocolate, I'm going to go down three miles down the country lane to get some, to go to the store and get some chocolate. And my, my, my roommate just had come, come down sick. I thought, great, perfect. I'll go get him some cold medicine, load up on the chocolate, and it's a win-win. And I'll be happy, and my meditation would be better because I have some chocolate. And So I was a howling, Wales gets really intense rainy weather, so I put on my rain gear, 
traipse down in the dark as a winter retreat down to the store and I get there and I just load up on chocolate and candy and I get so obsessed with getting chocolate I forget all about his cold. <laughs> traipse three miles back, you know, it's late by then, I get in the door and he's all sitting there sick and, you know, <laughs> waiting for his, you know, cold medicine and I'm like, oh, chocolate? It's really good for... So he took it in good spirits. He drew me this really cute, um, he's an artist, uh, drawing of me in the store and I've got this big coat just loaded with chocolate and behind the counter the woman's surrounded by cold medicine. (laughs) And I'm saying, and I'll take another one of those Cadbury's uh, (laughs) things. So anyhow, so tunnel vision, it can cause a lot of suffering, that's pretty harmless, but... So, what, from, a, from a deeper point of view, what we, what we sadly miss is, we, we, with, with our delusion, we misperceive the source of suffering. We believe suffering is outside, in some thing, in some temporal thing, and it's going to do it. We believe it's going to do it. How many times have you believed it's going to do it? Whatever thing, whatever it is you're seeking, it's like it's going to do it. It's going to be great, and we forget that it doesn't last very long. But more importantly, we forget we've we've misplaced the source of happiness. We've misplaced the source of happiness in somebody. Anybody not misplaced the happiness in somebody? Thinking somebody. If I just have, if this relationship just just would do what I tell them to do, they just give me what I need. I'll be happy. It's easy. Look, here's the list. I've got the list. Ten steps to make me happy. It never works. Because we misperce- we're thinking, as, as one of my teachers said, happiness is... If it can come and it can go, it's not true happiness. If it comes and goes, it's not true happiness. True happiness is in your nature. Your very nature is happiness. The happiness is, is within, is the source of our own being. So uh, Gendon Rinpoche, who was a wonderful retreat master, who lived Tibetan master who lived in, in, in southern France, um, he wrote this beautiful um, song called Free and Easy. Beautiful song. You can download it from the web. Um, and it begins with these lines, Happiness can, cannot be found through great effort and willpower but is already, present in open, is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. So that's a koan, really, for those of us who have been spoon-fed on consumer culture. How, what does he mean? Happiness is already available, is always available in open relaxation and letting go is always available before we shift from here to somewhere outside of ourself. Yeah? Take a look right now. Is there anything that you need right now? Is there anything that could make you more happy in this moment? Genuinely happy? Are you lacking anything in this moment? You don't go to your mind, don't go to the past. Like just look to your present experience. 
Is there really anything more you need to complete yourself? Could you be improved upon in this moment? My teacher Pundaji used to say, the thief of peace is the desire for the transient. The thief of peace is the desire for the transient. So, so we have this koan as, as human beings and as beings who are seeking uh, peace, freedom, happiness. We hear these teachings in different ways that's saying, just like Rumi points to, in many ways, you are the one that you're looking for. The one, the one that's doing the looking is the one you're seeking. You know, the, 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 the fruit or the, the source of well-being is, is here, is within, is in the moment. Can't be created, can't be improved upon, can't be developed, can't be manufactured. It's just the nature of things. And when we get quiet, from the busyness and the doing and the seeking, we can touch into that in moments. Nature is a beautiful way to, to experience that. Many people experience when we get away from man-made, consumer-made culture stuff, and we're in the natural world where there's a sense of more easy access to being, presence, we can perhaps get a taste of that. But at the same time, we live in, 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 a, in an age, in a culture, in a <coughs> conditioning that's very powerfully enforcing to instruct us to seek happiness and pleasure outside of ourselves. A teacher, a teacher I've studied with a lot, Hamid, he said that one of the biggest mistakes on the path for human beings is we mistake pleasure we mistake the seeking of pleasure for the seeking of peace. Because there is a momentary peace in the, in the consummation, in the act of pleasure, in the experience of pleasure. And the peace is the temporary suspension of desire. Because in that moment, we've satisfied the desire. So there's a momentary peace, like, oh, I get the Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Ah. Yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a moment of satisfaction, right? Until you go, oh, I feel sick. I need, I need, I want, I need Alka-Seltzer. Okay, and that's the next thing. And then, oh, now I'm hungry. I gotta go get the sandwich. Yeah. So, so notice that. Notice the the the, the, the contentment that comes from the uh, from. It's really the, the the releasing of the burning of attachment. A temporary cessation moment, you could say, happens. So, um, this is... Uh, um, what is this? This is an ad. And, um, as in, we really need to have some, some compassion for the strength of the conditioning that we live in. You know, I don't think the Buddha had any idea that, that society could become so profoundly materialist 
and and consumer driven as as we live in today. So I mean, his teachings are even more relevant than they were back then, when it was a pretty simple agrarian culture. And, and even then, he talked about everything being on fire with the fire of desire and and attachment. Um, so this is an ad from Outside Magazine, which is my favorite um, Buddhist, non-Buddhist ad. And there's a guy sitting in, this is, he's just been to Black Friday, because he's, he's, there's a guy sitting in front of all of his stuff. He's meditating like this, as they do in the ads, kind of weird. And he's got a kayak and a scuba and a surfboard and, and golf clubs and golf sticks and bike and computer and guitar and a dog and a, and a big pickup truck and surfboard, all kinds of stuff, frisbee. And the caption says, Spence has put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. <laughs> That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger, so he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. <laughs> he says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. So there you go. Who knows? Maybe Ford Motor Company has the answer after all. You know? We've been just, you know, there was. Anyhow. <clears throat> so, in terms of uh, working with attachment, just to some things for you to, to look at this week, um, uh, to notice when you're caught in desire and attachment. See if you want, if you can discern the difference. See how it feels in the body when you're attached. The next time you're attached to some results, some situation, some outcome, some desire, notice, notice the experience of that. What tells you you're attached versus being at peace or being at ease? Notice the beliefs or the view, views that are fueling it, right? the assumptions, the hopes, the expectations. And let yourself have the experience. And don't go, oh, I shouldn't be attached. No, I went to that talk. Mm, attachment's bad. No, feel it. Feel the attachment. It's here, so you may as well feel it and get to know it. Explore it, understand it. What is this? Is this what I want? How did this arise? What, what, what caused it to come into being? What allows it to pass away? And in meditation, it's a great place to watch desires and attachment. They come, you fuel for a while. And at some point, either you get bored or restless or it just ceases to hold your grip and it passes away. And you go, oh, look at that. This whole amazing desire, fantasy came. It's great. Came, passed away. And I feel peaceful not having gotten caught up in it. I once worked with somebody, so I worked with a lot of people one-on-one -on -one, and uh, this person had a food addiction and um, so I said, great, let's really bring mindfulness to, to this process. So next time you go, you're in the store and you're getting the potato chips or whatever it was, bring, you know, bring incredible mindfulness to that whole process of attachment. Right? Anybody here like potato chips? It's one of my favorite little attachments. It used to be. And then... You know, be mindful of thinking about it, planning it, going to the store, noticing the excitement, the salivation, the guilt, the fear, the ex whatever hope, <laughs> getting the, you know, 
big king size, you know, whopping great Trader Joe's <laughs> bumper pack. And then go into the go in the parking lot and you cart and then eat them really slowly, like really slow, like one at a time. You know, see what happens. And of course, if we have some kind of charge relationship to things, we, we it's, it's the place that we don't bring a lot of mindfulness to. So we don't actually really track the the moment-to-moment -moment experience. And when she did that, she realized the whole thing from beginning to end was completely and utterly miserable and unpleasant. Really, because any addiction is, even if the because the it just is the whole thing. And she that that did it for her. No more potato chips. So um, let's just do an, an exercise here. So just call to mind, uh, so we'll, we'll set an intention this week, to call to mind, so call to mind something that you have an attachment to that that's, feels workable to work with this week. Okay? So don't choose your, the biggest, most painful, difficult attachment ever in your life. Just something that you're, that you, you know you get caught around. You get controlling around. You get addicted to in a certain way. Maybe you're attached to your thoughts or being right or being first or being the best or some sexual experience or some food or just, just call to mind. Some, somewhere where you get caught where it has a compulsive, addictive quality to it. And just make the intention to bring as much mindfulness, investigation, curiosity, non-judgment, and kindness to that thing. And maybe in your meditation, every if you practice every day, to to call that intention to mind. Okay, I really want to. I really want to understand. Because if the Buddha says attachment is the cause of suffering, I want to know where I'm attached, and I want to understand that process. To just look, like, what is that? What, what, how come I get so hooked? You know, I, was like, I was having a conversation today with somebody, and they were reenacting re a certain pattern that they do in relationship. I don't know anybody else who does that, by the way, but anyhow, just kidding. Um, and and we were exploring. Well, what is that? What is that that keeps getting you to 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 engage in the same action that you know has caused you so much suffering in the past, and yet you keep reengaging, right? Which we all do in different ways in our relationships and our lives. So to get like, what is that? To get curious. What's the motive? What's the pull? What's the what's the payoff? Good. So um, I hope this uh, evening was uh, useful and uh, um, reflective for you to stir the pot a little around around uh, attachment. So um, for those of you who knew all these talks, or most of the talks that happen here on Monday night, they are available uh, on a website called dharmaseed.org. D-H-A-R-M-A, Dharma Seed, 
dot org and um, yeah and these these events are uh, on dana dana means generosity and so the teachers are supported here by your generous donations so thank you for that and i will be back next week have a wonderful week and i want to check in with you about attachment okay thank you take care please stack your chairs over in the corner turn right as you leave spirit rock have a wonderful week take care I also have some CDs for sale on the back table there, some meditation CDs. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.